You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, Citizens Church. Hopefully you already have your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 3, and you'll find verse 1. Before then, uh, before we get into Colossians, I do want to say again, like we've said in the past few weeks, if in this tumultuous time, in this time of difficulty and crisis, if you have needs, would you consider making those needs known to our church, whether you've been here uh, for a really long time or whether this is your first time worshiping with us? If you, because of everything going on in our world, you had needs uh, for prayer or you have needs for spiritual guidance or if you have needs financially or physical needs, would you consider emailing us requests at citizenschurch.com and making those needs known to us as the people of God as a church. Uh, we believe part of what it means to be a church is to represent God's heart to you and to the world. And his heart for you is that he cares about your needs. And so consider letting us help with those. We love you and you are not alone in this. Colossians chapter 3. If you were with us last week, you know that in chapter 3, we start a conversation about change about the life change that happens in the life of every single believer. And last week we were in verses one through four, uh, answering the question, why does that change matter? This morning we're gonna be in verses one and two, which means we're going backwards just a bit, uh, and answering the question of how does that change happen? Let me go back to our two truths that we stated last week that you have to hold together for this conversation to be received rightly and for us to understand change in the Christian life rightly. There's two truths. If you lose either, you lose Christianity. And truth number one is that God does not demand change before offering love. God, uh, right where you are, loves us right where we are. He does not say that you need to fix yourself and then come to me. He does not ask us to clean up our lives and then come to him. He does not give us a list of things to stop doing and things to start doing and say, I'm going to monitor your progress for a bit and then we can talk about salvation or then we can talk about love. The beauty of the gospel is just as I am because Jesus died in my place and rose again in victory over sin and death, God will meet me in my brokenness. He will meet me in my rebellion. He will meet me in my sin and love me right there and invite me into relationship with him just right there. And, and Jesus tells one of the most well-known stories about God's heart for the sinner. And it's a story about a son that runs away from home, the prodigal son, and he decides to go back home, and the conversation he plans to have with his father is this conversation filled with his resolutions of the things that he's going to do. And, and essentially, it, it all adds up to him saying, uh, would you let me come back as a servant and earn my way back into being a son? And he, so he comes home, and he gives that speech to his dad, and his dad just won't even hear it. And his dad responds, kill the calf Here's my robe, wear the family ring, here's these sandals, uh, kisses him on the cheek and accepts him back as a son. And that is the heart of God for us, the heart of God for sinners. He does not want servants who earn his love. He wants children who receive his love. That's your story, Christian. That's my story. That's his heart 
for us. And, and whether uh, you became a believer later in life after years and years of running from God, or maybe you became a believer early in life and you don't remember many days uh, where you did not know and love Jesus, what is true for all of us is that we were all equally in need and equally desperate for the grace of God. And that grace and that love meets us right where we are, just as we are not to servants who earn that love, but to children who receive it. And then we change. That love comes into our life right where we are, and it changes us. And it's not just any change, but it changes us to look more and more like Jesus. The unique vision of change in the Christian life is formation, being formed into the image of Jesus. And I just find it so helpful, the illustration we uh, talked about last week. It's like a sculptor who starts with a block of ice and just chips away to make something beautiful. That's God in love meeting us right where we are. What he will do is bring change in our lives by chipping away everything in our life that doesn't look like Jesus. And so because of that, because the aim of the Christian life is to look like Jesus, because that's the change we, we are after, there's a question to answer. The question is, who then does this apply to? And the answer is all of us. Uh, like, often the knee-jerk reaction to hearing about the need for change, uh, just the, the natural impulse of the human heart is to say, you know, not me, I'm fine. And then to think of all the other people in our lives who, who we believe their problems are very visible. Uh, their dysfunction is just full on display. And so, yeah, those people need help, but, but I'm good. And look, I get that response. That, that might be true if the, if the Christian vision for change is that you be a decent person, or if the standard for change that your life simply not be a wreck. But if the standard is become like Christ, if the change God wants to bring in my life and in your life is to uh, live and love and obey like Jesus, then there is no, I'm fine. There is no, you know, not me. There's no, I'm already there. There is no, I have already arrived. We all together are in need of change. If the change God wants to bring in our lives is for us to become like his son. And really those who understand this often are the ones who have uh, failed or struggled in ways that are very visible, or they've failed or struggled in ways that, that they never expected to. And what I've seen over and again is that some of the greatest, most Christ-like life change comes out of our greatest failures. When we sin in ways we, we didn't think capable, it comes out of some of our greatest struggle, and it's because in that struggle, in that failure, in the sin that we never thought we were capable of committing, what happens is not that we need change now and we didn't then, but we are exposed as having always needed to look like Jesus. And the heart and the self-righteousness and the apathy has been called out and the heart then has been softened by pain and the God of love chips away at that soft heart to make it look like Jesus. But look, you and I are not fine as we are. We have not arrived. You are loved and accepted as you are. You are not a servant who earns God's love. You are a child who receives it. And we need to change. And the God of love who meets us right where we are will not leave us the same. He will make us look 
like Jesus. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we saw last week why that change matters. This week, this morning, we see the question of how does that change happen? How is it that I become more like Jesus? And the answer that we see this morning is not going to shock you. It's probably not going to be new to most of you. It is not original or creative. But if you believe it, and if you live out of it, it will change you. How do we change? Through relationship with Jesus. Verse 1. Listen to the verbs, the commands. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I'll read through it one more time. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Filled in verses 1 and 2 is this relational language about relationship with Jesus, because it's relationship that brings that change in our life. I don't know if you've seen in, in the last you know few months as we have been apart and as we've been mostly at home, the desire for human connection is alive and well. And one of the only places that we can do that right now is, is on the internet. And so you've seen that especially on social media. And a few weeks ago, there was a challenge going around and telling couples or, or married couples to, to find and post the first picture ever taken of that couple. And it was super entertaining, especially those who uh, have been together for a long time, right? It's, it's those who've maybe been dating for a month or married for a year. You see their first picture and, and much hasn't changed. But those who've been together for, you know, a few years or those who've been together for a few decades, those are the best because the picture is old, especially those, you know, that, that posted from the late 90s and you see the 90s all over them. They look like an episode of Saved by the Bell together. But then when you, when you see those pictures... You know, especially if you, if you know what they look like now, you see all the change that's happened. You see how they've changed in their appearance over the years. But what we all know is that the change is not just physical. The change is not just fashion, right? That from when that picture is posted to now, they've changed in so many unseen ways. And they've been changed by one another because that's how relationships work. Uh, Carrie was uh, challenged by a friend to find and post our first picture together. I don't think it was our first ever picture together, but it was from the first few years of our relationship. And so uh, we were in college. I was 19. She was 20. And, and so I, I saw it and I hadn't seen the picture in years. And I had a few thoughts. My first thought was just that Carrie has just always been beautiful. She is as beautiful now as she was then. And she's just always been beautiful. And then I saw me and looked at me and I thought, why did no one in my life tell me not to dress like that back then? And then I just thought back to that time, like we're in college and what we don't know is all the life that is waiting for us and all the life that was ahead of us. And then I just thought about all of the change that we've been through together since that picture was taken in all of the ways namely that we have changed one another, that so much of the change that's happened in my life, she is responsible for. And so much of the change that's happened in, in, in her life, I am responsible for. Because you cannot be that close to someone relationally and not be changed by them. So side note, 
there is a myth out there that the goal of relationships or, or to find true love is to find someone who won't ask you to change, find someone who won't expect you to change, to find someone uh, who never tries to influence or request that you change in the relationship. And that's impossible. We cannot be in relationship with others at any sort of intimate level or any sort of close level and not be changed by them. Relationships will either make you better or they will make you bitter. And so the aim is to find someone uh, who wants to change with you, to find someone who wants to become like Christ with you and is committed to being honest with you and loving you unconditionally and over and over and over again, extending the grace of God to you as you change along the way. And that is another sermon for another day. The point is this, your most intimate relationships change you. You have been formed most by those closest to you. And these verses say something so simple about how we become like Jesus. And it's we become like Jesus by being in relationship with Jesus. Two commands, seek and set your mind. It says, seek that which is above. And the word seek there just means set your heart on. And it says, set your mind on things that are above. And so it's this all-encompassing command that you take your heart and your mind and you set it somewhere, that you take your will and your thoughts. A lot of that language is really familiar. What's been helpful, a word that has been helpful for me to capture this is just the word presence, that it's calling us to be present. The other day I'm watching a movie with my kids. My, my two oldest are watching a movie and I'm just sitting next to them on the couch and I'm reading something on my phone. And my oldest looked over at me and saw me looking at my phone and said, Dad, would you put your phone down and be here with us? What he's asking for is for my presence. He didn't want me to just be physically there with them, but he wanted me to be engaged in my mind. And really, he wanted me to want to be with them and not be somewhere else in that moment. Presence is, is what it means to be relating to someone. It is this engagement of your heart and your mind. And that's what this verse is calling for here, to seek, set your heart, set your mind. All of you, be present. Where? On things above. And what that means, he defines it, so we don't have to wonder. Set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Here's what I was struck by in reading this. Take your heart and your thoughts, be present with Jesus, but then the, the command that we're given is to be present with Jesus as he is now. It's present tense language where Christ is. In other words, it's not think about uh, Jesus uh, healing someone in the past. It's not think about Jesus walking on water. It's not think about Jesus preaching a sermon, although all of those things are important, but he draws us in to be present with Christ as he is in the present, as he is right now seated at the right hand of God. So this may belabor the point, but what is true about Jesus right now is that he's at the right hand of God. We had a, a prompt come up on the screen right before the sermon started, and it invited you to pray, to ask God to prepare your heart for the receive from the word. And if you did that, 
And if you prayed, Jesus heard your prayer at the right hand of God. That all of your life of following Jesus, every moment of your relationship with Jesus, he has been at God's right hand. Seek him there. Set your mind on him there. Be present with Jesus as he is at God's right hand. Let's unpack that a bit because I, I think that maybe that's an unfamiliar image of Jesus. Like I know what it means for Jesus to be on the cross. I know what it means to imagine Jesus walking out of the tomb. But what does it mean to set my heart and mind on Jesus at the right hand of God? Psalm 110 is a really important psalm for understanding Jesus, understanding this. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Hear this. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This psalm describes one who is coming, and there are two themes about that person. They have unmatched power. They uh, shatter kings. They rule over all things, and they are a priest, a forever eternal priest. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament because it's Psalm 110 that offers this picture and description of Jesus, of what he does, not just what he did, but what he does now. So when Colossians or anywhere else in the New Testament, it talks about Jesus being at the right hand of God, what it's saying is Jesus is the one who right now has unmatched power at God's right hand and who right now is a priest, an eternal forever priest at God's right hand. And so uh, Matthew 28, it's why Jesus says all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. That's everywhere. Philippians 2 says, for this reason, God highly exalted him, where? To God's right hand and gave him the name above all names that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow Every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one that has unmatched power over all things, rules and reigns over heaven and over earth. That's what it means for him to be seated at God's right hand. But it also means that right now he is serving as a priest. He is the great eternal priest. Romans 8 says that he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. Hebrews says he's able to save forever those who draw near because he forever lives to make intercession for them. At God's right hand, Jesus rules and reigns over all things. And also at the right hand of the Father, he defends you and pleads for you. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, I used to think that what it meant for Jesus to be at God's right hand interceding for me is that he's asking God for a favor, that he's maybe asking God to just take it easy on me. He said, but if Jesus is there as a priest, what he means is he's talking about a sacrifice, that he's mediating, that he's interceding. In other words, Jesus is not at the right hand of the Father asking for mercy. He's at the right hand of the Father asking for justice. 
and then uh, because sin deserves death and our um and our sin deserves blood to be shed that's a principle throughout the bible and so when jesus as a priest he's not there asking for a favor he's talking about a sacrifice his own sacrifice of his own blood shed for you and for me and so as our advocate at the right hand of God, Jesus points to the once-for-all sacrifice that he made in my place and in your place. He is priest forever, declaring forever the purifying effect of his death for you and for me. It's not that Jesus is trying to convince the Trinity because he hasn't made up his mind about us yet. It's not that uh, there's some sort of decision that needs to be made, but as priest forever, it's an ongoing declaration at the Father's right hand that Jesus has paid it all, that it is finished, and we rest, that God is pleased with us in Christ. And if we ever doubt we have only to remember Jesus' voice right now, defending you and defending me. Seek, set your mind, be present with Christ who is seated at the right hand of God and seeking him there, setting our mind, being in relationship with Christ, seated at the right hand of God, it will change us. There's a conversation that we'll have in a few weeks a practical conversation about what that looks like in the day-to-day, what that looks like on the ground. The reality is this, is that we do not seek and set our minds on Jesus outside of habits and practices and daily disciplines. Our lives right now are perfectly ordered to make us who we are becoming. And if part of that order of our life does not make space to spend time in prayer and scripture with Jesus, we will not just accidentally become like him. That's a conversation that we'll have, especially in verses 15, 16, and 17. But how does relationship with Jesus actually bring change in our life? Not just the practical outworking of how our days need to be ordered so that we spend time with him, but once we're present with him, what is it that happens, not just in our behavior, but what is it that happens in our heart that brings change? Two things. To seek and be present with Christ at the right hand of God means that Jesus becomes our greatest love. Augustine talked about sin at its core as not necessarily doing the wrong thing, or sin at its core as not even desiring the wrong things, but its very nature, what sin is, is loving most that which does not deserve to be loved most. So I can love my job, and I should, but if I love my job more than I love anything else, it's idolatry. I can love my spouse, and I should, but if I love them most, if they are my greatest love, then I will worship them and not worship God. And so all of us in life right now have a greatest love. It is the love in our life that we refuse to betray. It is the love in our life that we refuse to say no to. Jesus has this conversation with a young man who has a ton of money who comes to him to talk about eternal life and says, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And he says, I have since my youth, all of them. And then Jesus goes after something. He says, sell all you have and give to the poor. And the man hangs his head 
and walks away sad. What happened is, is this man had love for God, but the love that he had for God is not the love that he refused to betray. He had a love for his wealth and a love for his things that was his greatest love. And when asked to choose, his greatest love won out over his love for God. Jesus is the one who deserves that place in our life. As we seek him and set our minds on him, our loves will be reordered around the one who is at the right hand of God, who rules over all, has power over heaven and earth and life and death and sinner and saint. Every other love that vies for that place in our life and vies for our allegiance is found wanting, whether it's a person or a job or even ourselves. And you hear what it sounds like for Jesus to be greatest love when you hear people who talk about him who do love him most. Charles Spurgeon is one of the greatest preachers there ever was, and and I love how he talks about Jesus. He says this in one of his sermons. Unto believers, Jesus Christ is precious. In himself, he is of inestimable value. For he is the very God of very God. He is moreover perfect man without sin. The precious gopher wood of his humanity is overlaid with the pure gold of his divinity. He is a mine of jewels and a mountain of gems. He is altogether lovely. The man who has been brought to know that Christ is the only foundation upon which the soul can build its eternal home. He who has been taught that Jesus Christ is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the author and the finisher of faith, thinks not lightly of Christ. He calls him all his salvation and all his desire, the only glorious and lovely one. And as we seek and set our minds and are present in relationship with Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, we discover over and over again that he is worthy of our greatest love. And we discover more and more that he desires to be and rightfully owns that place in our life. And when we love him most, we love everything else best. When we love him rightly, all of our other loves fall in their rightful place. I tell my daughter, I tell all my kids, but I'll tell my daughter Adeline that I love her. And I try to tell her that often. And one of the things that she'll like to ask in response is, do you love me more than? And she'll just pick something. So I'll say, Addie, do you love me? Or I'll say, Addie, I love you. And she'll say, Dad, do you love me more than pizza? And I'll say, yes. In fact, almost everything that she asks about, I'll say, yes. Dad, do you love me more than Rowdy? That's our dog. Yes, of course. Uh, Do you love me, Dad, more than Citizens Church? Yes, I do. I I love being a pastor, but if I love being a pastor more than I love being a dad, then I'm unfit to be a pastor. Dad, do you love me more than the Dallas Cowboys? Absolutely, especially the last five years, right? And then she'll ask the ones that she know are not straightforward. Do you love me more than mommy? Or do you love me more than brother or sister? And a couple times she's asked this, Dad, do you love me more than Jesus? And my answer is no, I don't. I love Jesus most. But then I will tell her, Addie, that is really good news for you because it's only when I love Jesus most that I love you best. Think about this. If I said, yes, daughter, I love you more than I love Jesus, then that makes her my God. And when dads make gods 
out of daughters, it destroys them and deteriorates the relationship. It places on them an expectation they can't live up to, and it speaks over them an identity that they simply will not live up to. And yet to love Jesus most is to love her and everyone else in life and everything else in my life to love it best. Because then I, I don't look for uh, in other relationships. I don't look for other people to be for me what only Jesus can be for me. And I extend grace and I extend compassion and it makes everything else, once that greatest love is Jesus, it changes how I love everyone and everything else around me. And when our loves change, we change. When our loves change, who we are becoming changes. It also means this, when we seek and set our minds on Jesus, not only does he become our greatest love, but it means the voice I listen to most is a voice of love and not a voice of shame. More and more, what I'm understanding in my life and what I'm understanding about the lives of others is that much of what drives and influences our life much of what influences the change that we want and how we think and act is shame that comes from some voice in our life. I was talking to a friend a few years ago when we were talking about uh, him and his life and his relationship with God. And, and then we started talking about his dad. And he said, you know, my dad uh, wasn't abusive. My dad never yelled at me. But I was always one wrong move from one wrong move away from him being disappointed with me. I was always right on the line between his acceptance and his disappointment. And he said, I'm realizing how this has shaped how I think about myself because now I'm an adult and I'm out of the house and I've accomplished a lot, but it still feels in life. And I still think so often that I am always just a few steps away from being a disappointment. That's a voice of shame, is what he's describing. And we all have that. It's a voice that goes after who you are. Guilt deals with what you've done, but shame goes at your identity. Shame goes at who you are. It's why what he says is not, I'm afraid of disappointing, but I'm afraid of being a disappointment. I'm afraid that that's going to be the verdict over who I am and over my identity. And look, if the relationship, if relationship, is what changes us. For many, if we're going to be changed by Jesus, we have to start by acknowledging that the relationship that is most affecting us day in and day out, the relationship that has most made its way into our thoughts is the one that we have with our shame and the one that we have with, with the fears that shame. Look, shame is a voice that changes us, not by telling us who to become, but by making us live in fear that we're going to become someone that we don't like. And what shame does is it threatens you and it threatens me with a verdict about us that if true will crush us. The verdict that says you are a disappointment or you are a failure or you are a bad mom or you are uh, unlovable or you are unmarriable or you are untouchable or you will always be alone. You are broken beyond repair. And in the garden, it was a voice mixed with 
whispers of shame that tempted Adam and Eve and says, eat this and you'll be like God because as you are, you're not enough. And so from the beginning, shame like a snake with a forked tongue speaks to us. And maybe you trace it back to a relationship with a parent, or maybe it's you trace it back to the voice of a critic, or maybe it's just this internal conversation you are having with you about you, and you don't know where it came from. But much of our striving and doing in life is simply trying to prove that voice wrong. And so we perform to try and defeat shame. I will be better. I will get healthier. I will keep everyone happy. I will never disappoint. And when that doesn't work, we sin to try and escape it and numb it. But either way, the voice of shame is the one that's most influencing who we are becoming and how we're trying to change. And Jesus, at the right hand of God, would you know... He speaks a truer and better word about you. It's the voice of Jesus, a voice of love that interrupts the shame. And it's not cheap excuse. It's not empty flattery, right? It's the deep gospel word of taking all that you could be accused of and taking every nightmare verdict over your life and declaring over and again forever and ever that the verdict over you is one who is loved by God in Christ. Your shame has already been defeated. The voice of love from Jesus, your priest, is the loudest voice in your life. It's the truest voice in your life. And as followers of Jesus loved right where we are, we do not change for shame. We change from love. When I ask what does shame want from me, it requires more than what I have. If I ask what does Jesus, the one who loves me, want from me, he offers to us a burden that is light and a yoke that is easy and from a place of love. Jesus says, follow me, live like me, become like me, and all the while I'm speaking life over you along the way. Think about, like, as the voice of Jesus the priest interrupts every other voice in our life, think about the freedom that comes and the freedom that comes in our life that invites us to become like him and change like him. In the middle of the day, think about you feel surrounded by all of your inadequacies in the roles that God has entrusted to you as a a parent or as a worker, whatever that might be. And, And you think about your inadequacies and in your inadequacies, you hear the voice of shame weaponizing your insecurities against you. You're not enough. You'll never be enough. You don't have enough. And it weaponizes your insecurities as a question to you. Why is this so hard for you? Why is what every other person can do easily? Why is what's easy for everyone else in their home or easy for everyone else in their relationships or easy for everyone else at their job? Why is it so hard for you? And if you listen to that voice, you will either try harder and burn out or you will be given over to despair. But if you pause, if you see... If you set your mind on Christ who's seated at the right hand of God and the voice of love interrupts the voice of shame and says, no, you're not enough. And yet, not enough loved by the Savior who paid it all means that you can embrace your limits and you can live in freedom and know that the value of your life is not measured. It's not the sum total of how you're able to function in any given day or how you're able to uh, compare to others in any given day. Think of the freedom when that voice interrupts, how it will change you. In your sin, when temptation came, 
and you were too weak and you sinned against God and the voice of shame tells you you are a fraud and you're losing to the same old sins and you're not the Christian that you claim to be. And if you were a child of God, you would be past this already. And if you listen to that voice, you will feel so far from God and you will feel so far from hope. But to pause, to set your mind and your heart to be present with Christ, seated at the right hand of God with Jesus now, and the voice of love disrupts the voice of shame, and the priest who pleads your case, he does not think your sin is small, but he knows his sacrifice is sufficient, and he has made forever atonement for your sin, so that when we sin, we don't listen to shame, but confess and come near to the one who is faithful to us, even when our faith fails. The same voice that intercedes for you is the voice that told the story of the father who runs out onto the road to meet a broken son with robes and rings and sandals and open arms because he does not want servants who earn his love. He wants children who receive it. Hear him. Hear him. If the priestly interceding voice of the Son in your place were to be the loudest, most prominent in your life. If you just think, friends, the entire time I've been talking to you, the Son has been talking to the Father words of life and intercession and truth and love about you, and to seek him at God's right hand, to be present with him there, is the voice of love to change our lives and to meet us, especially, especially when our struggles are greatest and our fears are loudest and the change that brings. Look, this is how we become like Jesus, relationship with Jesus, to seek him where he is now, to set our hearts and our minds to be present with him as he is now and to know along the way he is laying a path for us to become like him and it is a path that is filled with grace and filled with love and as we move closer to him our loves orient around him we become like him and live as those who are loved by a god right where we are father we love you we thank you for your mercy thank you for your grace Declare, God, that what is true is that you are saying about us right now, Lord Jesus. That right now, as, as I am here speaking these words, you are speaking, you are declaring, you are interceding, and there's so much life in that for us, God. So we thank you. We want God to become like you. Would you discipline our hearts to be present with you, to seek you, to love you, to spend time with you, that we might become like you through relationship with you. That is our greatest aim in life, our greatest ambition in life, to look like you, Jesus. Help us. Amen.